last two Wednesday nights, we've had these massive snowstorms, so whatever that means. Um, so maybe you are tuning in from the comfort of your home. Either way, uh, welcome back. I uh, updated the, the list of the schedule. Uh, the only really ch- real change so far is for tonight was last week and then tonight, last time we met and then tonight. And then I increased the font so that you could read it back easier. So you can kind of plan ahead uh, for what we got coming for the rest of, schedule out for the rest of, of this gospel. Let's pray, and then uh, God will prompt the other people to come in or something. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you tonight, and we thank you uh, for this warm, dry place that we get to gather, and for uh, the opportunity to be together and to open your word. And we just pray as we embark on a new year on the calendar and also embark on the rest of the gospel that Matthew has given us, uh, that you would continue to prompt our hearts and move us uh, closer to you and move us not just on a Wednesday night, but, but every day uh, so that we can grow in our understanding and our commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so part of why, we, um, why I shifted the schedule from last week is because really um, we'll start tonight and we'll see that you know, we went through this big section post, uh, post the Sermon on the Mount, and, and there is a case to be made that the Sermon on the Mount and the healing, all the healings that took place uh, were a larger section. Uh, but as we saw, the Sermon on the Mount, tons of big red text, meaning the words of Jesus, and then all these healing events with some other uh, things that are interspersed. Now we're going to get um, a bunch more teaching here for a little bit. Uh, and so is it similar to what we had in the Sermon on the Mount? Not really, sort of. Uh, but I want, us to, I want us to go back because I think it's important for us to see uh, this rhetorical device um, Go back to page, uh, I don't know what page it is because I don't have the blue Bible, uh, verse 23 of chapter 4. Uh, so this is right after Jesus calls the first disciples. And again, we're trying to see uh, the narrative connections that, that Matthew is weaving together as he writes this uh, gospel. So in 23 of 4, he says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So then flip back to where we are tonight. Um, And we are in verse 35 of chapter 9. Matthew says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So we see this interesting, now they call it an inclusio, think of like a narrative sandwich. So he gives us this wording back and forth uh, before the Sermon on the Mount, and then he bookends it, he either bookends it with this uh, section, with this similar phrase, or he wants us 
to see what he's doing because right after this we get uh, this big section of teaching from Jesus. So it's an interesting uh, thing that, that Matthew is doing. Again, when we break it up and we chunk it out, we miss, uh, we miss those kind of interesting connections. So anyways, Jesus is going throughout uh, the region, and he's teaching in their synagogues, and he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, it's interesting because as he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, what is happening? And healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Here comes the big teaching. Go now, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of, the judge, of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you, the disciples, out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his master, nor a servant above his master. Uh, sorry, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear 
whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I know sometimes it can, it's, it's a miraculous thing when I read, when I read scripture, people just miraculously appear. I look up and the crowd is multiplied. Um, I know at sometimes it, it can be seem laborious to, to read through it. Uh, again, I just want us to keep in mind uh, the flow, especially of this huge section of teaching um, of Jesus. And I know you say, well, why didn't we keep going to the end of 10? Because we can only get through so much content in one night. So that's why we ended there. So again, Jesus is done with the healing, and now he's moving into this more focused uh, teaching and ministry with his disciples because he's going to be sending them out uh, to do what he, what he has been doing. You maybe heard some themes uh, that we've been addressing. But first, Matthew tells us that the, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom comes along with these physical events, healing the diseases and every affliction. Again, Matthew loves to use these all-encompassing words. Every disease, every affliction, talking about the scope of which the healing that Jesus does. We would like more, but he doesn't give us more because he wants us to see, again, this broad brush stroke of the impact of what Jesus is doing. The gospel of the kingdom doesn't just reside in word only. It has real-life event consequences for those who hear it and experience it. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this word compassion is very important because it is this internal movement of Jesus's innermost being. And so for, for Matthew, in his uh, finite scientific understanding of the human body, uses this imagery like the inner bowel movement. You were sleeping and now you're awake. The movement of his innards towards the people. Now, for some of us, we can, we can see this as sympathy, but we have to distinguish between these concepts of sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Because we notice that Jesus has compassion which produces results. His compassion drives him to do something. Often is the case that when we have sympathy, we feel bad for someone. So we see somebody, we're like, phew, feel bad for that person as we continue to move throughout our day. Empathy is this idea of feeling with someone. So we get down and we feel with them. We experience the pain that they are experiencing. And compassion is taking our empathy and then seeking to 
change the situation in which that person finds themselves. So notice how Jesus, he sees the crowds, he sees that they are, what does he say? Harassed and helpless. So when we put ourselves in the shoes of Jesus, when we see someone who is harassed and helpless, it should follow that we have compassion for that person. And again, it's not, oh, I feel so bad that that person is in that situation. It's, I want to experience what they're experiencing, and I want to be with them and seek to bring about the flourishing of that person. So notice, Jesus doesn't just feel bad for these individuals. He sees these people that are in this precarious position, harassed and helpless, and he does something about it. And so he is, Matthew is giving us this image of those who identify as followers of Jesus Christ should have this same mindset. We should have eyes to see people in our lives who are in a disadvantaged position and not just have sympathy, but have empathy and compassion to produce results for those people's physical situation. Because notice again, the kingdom of God is not just about this idea of, well, it's going to be better eventually. When the kingdom of God breaks in at Christmas and Jesus advances the kingdom of God, what comes with it? Real, actual, physical changes in people's lives. And so if we are going to be about bringing about the kingdom of God, then we too should be seeking to bring about the flourishing of other people in our context, not just in, here's how you get out of hell or avoid going to hell, but here's how the kingdom of God benefits our lives in the present. Then he uses this imagery of this, the sheep without a shepherd. You know, again, Oftentimes, the followers of Jesus Christ are, are presented in, not in the best terms. <laughs> it's not like, and he saw this group of wild horses flourishing about on the plains. They just needed to be corralled. No, they're helpless, pathetic sheep who don't know where they're going. And then he, he gives this great line. He says it right to his disciples. Because again, we see this distinguishing between the crowds, large group of people, and the disciples, small group of people. And now he looks and he says directly to his disciples this phrase, you know, this classic Jesus phrase about the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. Somebody said today, seems like today's work environment. <laughs> Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the, his harvest. And then right after that, we get these laborers that are going to go out into the harvest. And notice he doesn't send out this huge group. He doesn't send out 100 people. He doesn't send out you know, even 50 people. He sends out 12 people. And, and at first reading, as we come across this section of Matthew, 
we're like, well, wait a second. Is he just, it says, and he called to him his 12 disciples. We can often think, well, why are they being introduced now? Right? Because we've had these individual or, or uh, two sets of, of brothers being called, and we had Matthew being called. Now, is this the calling of the rest? No. Because as we see within the story, within the narrative, he's, t- he's telling his disciples and he calls them closer. It's not that he's calling them for the first time. They've been with him, and now he's calling them closer for specific instructions. Matthew chooses to give us this ragtag bunch of individuals. Notice there's, there's sets of two family members coming together, and then there's this, you know, just ragtag bunch of individuals. The thing that I love about this is Jesus could have done this himself. Like, Jesus is God, right? And so God can do what God wants to do. And Bennett pointed this out this morning, and I thought, of course. If we go all the way back to the beginning, to like the Genesis beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, and what does he do? He invites them into something. He invites them into the participation of this thing called life on earth. The invitation into what it means to be in relationship with God himself and in relationship with the creation. And he provides them with the opportunity to name the animals as part of God's participatory work. How often is it the case that we think, God acts, and then we either receive or respond to his actions. So God acts, and we react. But in this case, Jesus is inviting this 12, these 12 individuals into the advancement of the kingdom of God. God acts through human agents. God chooses to use human beings to bring about his kingdom here on this earth. So the calling and the, this instruction about the disciples, Matthew wants us to be well aware that Jesus, although he could do all of these things himself, he chooses to use human beings to bring about what he is doing. And I think sometimes we miss how important that is. Because we, the called ones, those who are Followers of Jesus Christ are to enact what Jesus started with his ministry and then to live it out into all of our contexts. Now, certainly we get this idea of the 12 and the recreation of Israel. And so somebody had asked, were there other disciples? Yes, there certainly were other disciples. The word disciple is someone who follows a teacher Uh, We've talked about this phrase before. It's basically an apprentice, someone who learns from someone else and then does what that person does. So Matthew is choosing to select out, because Jesus chooses to select out, these 12 by name as the sent ones, because that's what Jesus is doing. He's sending them out. That's what he says in the next verse. These 12 Jesus sent out. But before he sends them out, he gives them this huge list of instructions. Now, it's interesting because one thing that we want to be aware of is when Matthew is 
discussing what's happening, we have to ask ourselves, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? So is Matthew describing what is happening? Is Matthew telling the words of Jesus in the most idealistic way that it should happen for these 12 people? Or is he telling us how we are to act in a one-to-one correlation? And the answer is most likely A. This is a description of how Jesus is to live, these disciples are going to live out their lives. Now, there are principles and practices that, that exist within the narrative that we can pick up on, but, but so often is the case that we just jump right in. And notice, we don't jump in as like the harassed crowd, Right? We don't jump in as the sick leper often or the paralyzed person or the blind person. Uh, we don't jump in as the Pharisee or we don't jump in as somebody who's, you know, we jump in, like, we're going to jump in as a lead character. So we're, we're going to be exactly who these disciples were, which I want to caution us on this. So he's about to send them out to do this ministry, and he gives them some very interesting and stern words. First, he gives them a strategy. He says, first you're going to go to the Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he says, go as, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, notice the kingdom of heaven is at hand and what follows right after that? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So when the kingdom of God comes and advances on earth, these things happen. And I know we've been talking about this maybe at nauseum, because for some of us we say, well, how could this be? How could this be? How could this be that people are raised from the dead? How could this be that, that we have, these individuals have the ability to cleanse lepers and cast out demons? And it's interesting, right? Spoiler alert, because then they encounter this demon that they can't cast out, and they're like, Jesus, what in the world? Why? You said we could do this, and now we can't do this. Familiar experience. So why is it that he gives them this power to do these things? Because the kingdom of God is about making a difference in the here and the now. And I know it's, it's hard for us, and again, we, we've been talking about this. We have these experiences where we, we might not be able to do these things. And we're going to get to Jesus' words about you know, the future and when, when he you know, tells them about how things are going to be and, and what his followers are going to do once he's gone. I want to, again, caution us. Jesus, these words are to the 12 disciples as they are going out into ministry. Does that mean that we just say, well, pff, I can't do any of these things? Okay, again, we've talked about this. It, no. But I just want to caution us a little bit around some of these things and saying, well, I'm, I'm one of the 12 and so on and so forth. 
So then he says, do not receive money for any of these things that you do. Go out in this bare bones way. Do not bring extra sandals or an extra tunic and these sorts of things. Why is it? Because as they go out, they are on a mission to find people who are, the word he uses is worthy of this experience. He says in verse 11, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. One thing I want to, to want us to think about, and, and it really comes from somebody that is much older than I am. Well, because he's dead. John Calvin says this. He says, by these words, talking about Matthew uh, in this section, he tells them to find out if there are any godly and decent people who have still some lively signs of the fear of God and of religion upon whose readiness to learn there may be good reason for hope in order that they may devote their attention to them in particular. And as this commentator says, worthy may be better translated as receptive. Because as we read this, we often think, the, the disciples are evaluating the, these people's ability to, beco- to become followers of Jesus Christ. And so since I'm a disciple, then that's part of my job. I have an encounter with somebody and I decide, um, yep, this person is unworthy of the gospel. Uh, we often do decide that. We take a verse like this and we say, this is what Jesus is saying. He says, go into an area and decide who's worthy of the gospel. What I'm trying to caution us to say is, A, it's a misrepresentation of that word. B, we're not the disciples. We're not the 12 who this direct instruction is going to. Now, the principle applies very much to us. Part of what Jesus is instructing them to do is to go and to find those individuals and households who are willing to provide hospitality to the disciples, who are open and receptive to the movement of God in their lives, and then partner with them. So often we miss the connection between hospitality and the gospel. Because he says, Later on in the same section, it will be worse for these people than those in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the main problem in Sodom and Gomorrah was, we say, oh, it was all about sexual sin. False. Yes, it was partly about sexual sin, but it was more about how people were being treated and hospitality. The gospel and hospitality are one and the same together. And so the disciples, as they enter into these towns, are to look for people who are willing to be hospitable, both literally and figuratively. Hey, come into my home. You have no place to stay. Come and eat my food. You don't have any food. I will take care of you while you are in this place. And those are the people that are open and receptive to the gospel at this time. And if you encounter somebody who is not open and receptive, then move on. 
because there will be people that are open and receptive. So again, we, I just really want to caution us because one side of the pendulum, you know, we just keep using this, this imagery, is we take these words and we apply them directly to our lives. And so as we go throughout our, our interactions with people, we say, okay, worthy, not worthy. And if you're a Wayne's World fan, you say we're not worthy, right? <laughs> Anyways, sorry. That's one side. And we, we say, we deem, oh, that person's not worthy of the gospel. Too bad for them. The other side of the spectrum is we just drive our head into the proverbial relationship wall and we say, eventually this person's going to accept Jesus and I'm just going to, I don't care if there's 50 other people around me that are open and receptive, this one is the only one I care about and I'm just going to go after this person until they eventually submit. And the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. We have these evaluative decisions to make in the relationships that we have in our lives. As we're trying to share the gospel with somebody, this concept of outreach, to bring the kingdom of God into someone else's life through things like hospitality. And we get to have these conversations and we get to find out, is this person open and receptive to the movement of the Spirit? Then we press in. Although, how often is the case that we, we so quickly say, oh, they're not receptive, I'm out. Typically because we don't like that person. <laughs> this person's hard or difficult or, yeah, no, they, I don't think they're, they're not open. Well, is that because we don't want to do the hard work in that relationship? Or is it because they're adversarial to the gospel? Which those are two very different things. And so as we go throughout our relationships, we, we make these decisions. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us discern, is my investment of time in this relationship moving closer to the kingdom of God or is this a dead end at this point for me? That is a very, very hard decision. But notice what they're doing. Notice what they're doing. As you enter the house, tiny little phrase. Hey, I'm new in town. Any chance we can stay here? <laughs> They're going door to door to discover who may be open and receptive to the advancement of the kingdom of God. What, what Matthew leaves out is they had on white shirts, a black tie, and a name tag. <laughs> to be clear, Mormons are not, yeah. But you know what Jehovah's Witness and Mormons are? They're people who are willing to go door to door to find out who's receptive to the message that they are presenting, which is not the gospel. 
Are we willing to go and find out? If you want to talk about conviction, and I've talked about this before, the neighbor who lives right across the street from us haven't had the best relationship with them. Never once did I go and say, hey, do you guys go to church? Because I work at this church and you guys might be interested in attending. Never once did I say, hey, you guys want to come over and have dinner? We can, you know, get to know each other and not be adversarial when my dog runs away and pees in the corner of your house. Not once. And then one Sunday, the guy walks through the front door. I was like, oh, God. Must be a one-off. Then he came back again. Then he came back again. Are we willing to do, if we want to call ourselves disciples, are we willing to do what the disciples did? To go door to door in our environment and to seek out those who may be open to the advancement of the kingdom of God in their lives. We talk about it. Outreach. And I know it sounds so great. It's like wonderful Christianese. Outreach. The advancement of the kingdom of God through personal relationships. What is outreach? Caring about those who exist within our day-to-day interactions to find out if they're willing to engage with the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now again, this isn't... Hey, welcome. Uh, I just wanted to let you know, if you were to die tonight, would you go to hell? That's different. That's, as Rob Bell talks about, the uh, bullhorn guy standing on the corner. This is about interpersonal relationships, seeking out those who God is working on and then going and engaging with them, granting them peace. Now, some of this stuff, you're like, but what does that even mean? How do you take your peace back? Your peace will return to you as if it's this finite object. It's like, you know, some fancy spiritual boomerang. You throw it out, and if the person doesn't catch it, it comes back to you. I don't know. It's like limited resources. And as as we'll find out, some of these other phrases were like, And we've learned so well that by adding more words to the explanation doesn't actually make the explanation more clear. (laughs) This is the ministry strategy that Jesus is putting out. And then he encourages them by saying, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. (laughs) So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors 
and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Jesus is warning them. This is what you're getting yourself into. You are entering into a den of wolves, a community, this picture of the world is a community of wolves seeking to devour those who are followers of Christ. Notice he doesn't use imagery of, we were uh, out uh, pheasant hunting in North Dakota this last week and we get out of the truck and there is, I'm not kidding you, the biggest dog I've ever seen in my life. And what is it called? Some shepherd? Anatolian shepherd. Nikki is a dog expert, and so if you ever have a random question about dogs, she can probably provide you with the answer at least within 24 hours. I mean, the dog's head was like this big, and its back was as tall as the one-ton bumper of Joe's truck. I'm like, this dog is, you've seen, right? You've seen Sandlot? This dog was bigger than that dog. Now, if Jesus says, I'm sending you out as an Anatolian shepherd among the wolves, you'd be like, yes, let's go. No, these defenseless creatures entering into this environment. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This is... This is like the, the opposite of, you know, we always harass the snakes. Wisdom or discernment and peace. Discernment and peace as we navigate through this world full of wolves. And I know we have these, especially as it relates to things like missions or mission trips. And we have this question around well, is it safe? You know, people say, oh, I can't believe you're going to Detroit. It's unsafe. How unsafe is it? This is not a punchline. You just be smart. You be smart and you be peaceful. Yeah, we're not rolling downtown at 10 o'clock at night, walking up to groups of folks. Hey, have you heard about the kingdom of God? No, it's wisdom and, and peace. It's discernment and peace. It's not testing God. Remember back when uh, we were talking about Jesus being tested by, by Satan, and Satan says, you know, basically throw yourself into danger, and if God really is, is your father, he will save you. That is not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's not calling us to be... Uh, ridiculous or reckless. He's not calling us to be silly as it relates to so many things. He's actually calling us to the opposite, to be wise and peaceful. But how often is it the case that that we default to risk aversion and we call it safety? We can be wise and risk-averse and still go into places that the advancement of the kingdom of God is going to take place. 
So he's calling them to discernment and peace. What if that's how we led into our outreach? With discernment and peace. Typically, that's not really a good posture that we seem to, uh, that this current environment seems to enjoy. Because what's going to happen? Persecution is going to happen. These people are going to try and find ways to do you in. He's telling the disciples this. And he says, when it happens, do not be anxious. The Holy Spirit will speak on your behalf. And what's going to happen? It's going to be bad. Now the question becomes, is he talking about someday in the future, post-resurrection, or is he talking about what is about to happen as they go out into the present? We ask that question because he, he says, you'll not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So we scratch our heads and we say, is Jesus prophesying about the future? Or is he talking about what, like, not the immediate future, but like the distant future? Or is he talking about what they're going to experience in the present? And then again, he, he makes this case that, that no one is greater than the next. And then he uses this phrase that you might remember. He says, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Well, remember back in 934? He casts out the demon, and what do they say? What? Yeah, he casts out the demons by the prince of demons. And so notice that connection, because Jesus is saying, remember what I just said? It's going to happen. So have no fear. <laughs> he paints this terrible picture. And then he's like, but don't be afraid. But what are they not to be afraid of? They're not to be afraid of the consequences or the individuals that they will encounter. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. And do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fascinating phrase. Like, what exactly is taking place here, Jesus? Is this some case for annihilationism? Well, the challenge becomes, if we pluck one sentence out of one verse and we construct a whole theological uh, framework around one sentence out of one verse, it's a pretty thin way to come to a conclusion. And then he gives this example of sparrows and pennies. And he says, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How incredible is that? Jesus is saying, whatever you're going to encounter, it doesn't even matter. Don't be afraid of all of these things. 
He says, God is with you. God is for you. God cares about the sparrows, and he cares more about you than the sparrows. How amazing is that? As Jesus is sending them into the teeth of the wolves, literally, that's the imagery that he gives. And he says, and the Father, our Father in heaven, cares more about you than anything else which gives us freedom to live into this thing called outreach. And I know I'm, we don't have a choir here, but I'm preaching to it. <laughs> so we have the, we have the elite, elites here. So I know sometimes you're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. And I just keep saying it because sometimes we need to hear it over and over and over and over. That to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is to seek to bring about the advancement of the kingdom of God in other people's lives by direct personal connection. And I know there, there are loads of people we intersect with on a daily basis, and we're like, literally, God, anybody but those people. And in chapter 12, we're going to talk about the sign of Jonah. And Jonah's like, no, no, no. He was so committed. He's like, I'm out of here. I would rather die than go testify about the advancement of the kingdom of God to those people. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what it means to live out this life. And there are some significant consequences. The words of Jesus, so everyone who acknowledges me before human beings, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before human beings, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Whew. That's hard. If we honestly believe the words of Jesus, how we did out do outreach would be different. And one of the questions tonight is, is about the ways in which we deny Jesus, not with our words, not with what we say, but with how we live. How we deny Jesus in our personal interactions with other people. How we make decisions in how we treat other people, how we overlook other people, how we don't stand up for other people, and in that moment we deny that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our lives. Not with anything we say, but with everything that we do. You can go to your groups. I'm guessing you're going to want to consolidate tonight because there's few less people, 
be easier for the females to do that in here. Uh, so the guys, you can just kind of figure it out. 